your Bibles, open with me to Psalm 75. Psalm 75 is a song of faith. A song of faith expressing the sovereignty of our Lord over all things. It's a song that um, is sung to, as we'll see in the title, a well-known tune. So it was one of those that they knew and they probably used the same tune and they just added different different words to it so it would be familiar to the people so that they could just sing that song and and express that rejoicing to the Lord. And you know, in a world that um, is so uncertain, it's really, it's, it's, it's good to know that we can count on God, that He's sovereign. And when it looks like things are falling apart, we know that His, you know, he, He's in there. He's, he's still there. You know, He hasn't forsaken us. And so, you know, we should be rejoicing over the knowledge of that. And so um, we'll jump right in to the chief musician set to do not destroy, a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your wondrous works declare that your name is near. So thanksgiving, thanksgiving and praise. We're in the we're in a couple of weeks, we're into Thanksgiving, but we're going to have a Thanksgiving psalm here tonight. Be giving thanks for God's sovereignty, giving thanks that He's in charge, that giving ch- thanks that, that things aren't running you know, away from Him, that He knows. He, he's, he's on top of it. You know, giving thanks to Him that, that, that even in our life, when things look like they're just going in, in a bad way, God knows. You know, and, and that's something that I think that brings us all comfort, you know, that is that God is sovereign and that He understands what we're going through. So thanksgiving and praise, two things that oftentimes in our worship, you know, as we sing songs to Him, as we, you know, maybe we have a time of worship on our own or just, you know, even ride, driving in the car and, we, and we, we have a worship CD or listen to some worship music. You know, it's just a time for us to just rejoice in song. And a lot of times, thanksgiving and praise are part of what we do in worship. And we think about the things that we thank Him for. We think about the things that we praise Him for and the closeness of that relationship with Him is something that we should always be giving thanks for. The psalmist says, your wondrous works declare that your name is near. God is close. He's intimate. He's near us. He's never far from us. So something that we can always be giving thanks for and praising Him for. His nearness is manifested in how He works in our lives. That we can say, if we're, no matter what we're going through, God's in this. God's hand is in this situation because we see evidence of Him working. 
You know, even in, in times of difficulties or in things that we would think that, you know, th- that God isn't in, we see the results of it. You know, maybe the death of a loved one or, or a sickness or an illness or, or some really difficult situation. You know, we, we, if we recognize that God is near to us in those things, then we can think about, meditate and pray about how God will use that situation maybe to, to minister to someone else, you know, in, in, that, in that that we're going through. So God is close. So the nearness of him is something that we should be thankful of. And now, in verses 2 through 5, God actually speaks through the psalmist. It says, When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. The earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly, Selah. I said to the boastful, Do not deal boastfully. And to the wicked, Do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck. You know, God is always speaking out against the proud. You know, we, we learned in, in the, the message uh, a week ago Sunday in Jeremiah 9 about the boastful, about the things that we are not to boast in. And that God looks upon pride as one of those things that he, he really despises, he hates. And, you know, it says, it says in Proverbs 6, I think the verse is up there, verses 16 through 19, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. A lot of these things that he hates are selfish things, things that we do in order to sort of boast ourselves up and that tear down other people. So it really, it all comes back to pride. Uh, a heart that devises wicked plans. Why would a heart devise wicked plans except, except to take advantage of somebody else? So again, that pride gets in there. Feet that are swift in running to evil. Again, what would be the purpose of someone to run swiftly toward evil except that they would be, that they would be built up because of it? So something that God hates, a false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among the brethren. All of those things, I think, can be really summed up in that one word, and that is pride. So God says in verse 4, do not deal boastfully and, and to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. The horn is, don't, is, is a symbol for strength in the Bible. So what he's saying to the wicked is, don't think you're so strong. Don't, don't parade yourself around as if you're something special. Do not lift your horn on high and do not speak with a stiff neck. A stiff-necked person is somebody who, who's stubborn, somebody who won't hear another opinion, someone who thinks they're always right. So, so that's the kind of thing that God is speaking out against in those verses. And then he continues here, for exaltation comes from neither the east nor the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. So, again, it's not about us. You know, it's about God. You know, I, I, I love the fact that 
If we humble ourselves, God will exalt us. We don't have to exalt ourselves. We don't have to boast. We don't have to raise ourselves up. If we humble ourselves, then he'll do that. In, in Luke 14, verses 8 through 11, I love this example of that. It says, When you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you will come and say to you, Give this place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. Imagine, imagine getting invited to a wedding and sitting in the most prominent place, whatever that might be. I mean, you know, nowadays it would be hard, probably the table number one, right, at the wedding. And just sitting there and then having the, the host come over and say, could you go sit at table number 10, please? Because this is reserved for the special people. That would be humiliating. So, so the scripture is saying, don't do that. But when you're invited, verse 10, go and sit in the lowest place so that he who invited you may come and say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For, who, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let God, let God exalt you. Don't do it yourself. And that's a really great lesson for all of us. Then in verses 8 through 10, back to Psalm 75. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. But I will declare forever, I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will also cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. So look, God's in charge. He's sovereign over all things. Give him that, that what's due to him because of his sovereignty. And he's going to judge you know, and, and we shouldn't question that because he's always righteous. You know, he holds the cup of wrath, it says in those verses, and it will be poured out. He's faithful. You know, we don't have to do it. God, is, God will be faithful to judge the wicked, those who don't believe, and those who trust in him will be lifted up. So, you know, just not taking that vengeance upon yourself, uh, not, not trying to get even, you know, allowing God to exalt you and he will judge those, not, not for us to take that, that place and do that. And, uh, you know, how many times in this, in this world we just feel like we want to get even, you know, we want to get back, you know, someone's wronged us. And, uh, you, know, you know, prayerfully consider you know, how God would want you to respond to those kinds of things, you know, and then, and then just leave it in his hands, you know, let him do it, let him do it. Um, moving on to Psalm 76. Again, the Psalm 75 expressed the closeness, the nearness of God to those, to those of us who believe. It's about relationship, it's about intimacy with God. 
You know, it's about rejoicing over that. Psalm 76 also expresses God's relationship with his people. You know, the relationship that God has with those who trust in him, who believe in him. And it's expressed in, in three different ways. The intimacy that he has with his people in verses 1 through 3. And then because he loves us, because he wants the best for us, in verses 4 through 9, the victory that he gives us over our enemies. You know, we should trust in him that he will deal righteously with those who come against us. And then the relationship of God's majesty, just knowing his awesome power, just seeing him as he truly is. And that's expressed in verses 10 through 12. And then understanding that that majesty brings us to a place of worship and that, and that praise will be the result of understanding truly who he is. So in verses uh, 1 through 3, to the chief musician on stringed instruments, a psalm of Asaph, a song. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the arrows of the bow, the, seal, the shield and the sword of battle, Selah. So Judah, Israel, Salem, Zion, all different names for the same place, the place where, where God, God dwelt in the, in the tabernacle and his presence was there amongst the people. So again, the closeness, the nearness of him, the intimacy, you know, the abiding that we're to have with Jesus. And so as children of God, we partake in that. Listen, those who don't know him don't partake in that same intimacy. They, don't, they can't have that relationship with God. But as his children, we have that relationship. And in times of difficulty, we, can, we appreciate his closeness, don't we? You know, when we're going through a trial, we can say, God, thank you that you're near to me. Thank you that I have this relationship with you. We really get to a place where we appreciate him more and more when we go through difficulties. And to know God is to experience the understanding that he loves us. You know, and to truly know him is to, is to understand that and that he wants the best for us and that he will bring us to victory. It says there in verse 3, there he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield and the sword of battle. So the victory is God's and he'll bring it to those who trust in him. And then in verses 4 through 9, the psalmist says, you are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted were plundered. They have sunk into their sleep, and none of the mighty men have found use of their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and the horse were cast into a deep sleep. You yourself are to be feared, and who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? You cause judgment to be heard from heaven, the earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment to deliver all the oppressed of the earth, Selah. And, you know, and again, that, that word Selah 
just a pause, a time to meditate on those words that came before it. In verse 4, the psalmist here contrasts God's power with the supposed power of earthly armies. It says, you're more excellent than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted were plundered. They have sunk into their sleep, and none of the mighty men have found use of their hands. Those who trust in their own power will be overtaken, and God will cause them to become inept in their attempts to gain victory over his people. Now, think about it, going into battle in this world, how awesome it is to know that God's on our side. God's on our side. That we don't have to fight that battle alone. And then in verse 7, instead of fearing earthly armies, God is to be feared. God is to be feared. It says there, you yourself are to be feared. Who can stand in your presence, God? You know, just thinking of his awesome power and his sovereignty. And then his judgment. It's, it's twofold. First, he judges the wicked to their rightful place of humility. And then he delivers those who are downtrodden. So the judgment has two results of bringing down those who, those who are pride, prideful, those who don't trust in him. He brings them down. And then he also raises up those who do put their trust and faith in him. And in those, in those things, we can see that God is completely fair and he's just in all his dealings with mankind. And isn't that what we need? Is just fairness and justice. You know, you know, and we just went through an election and you know, sometimes it's the lesser of two evils. We, it's so difficult to figure out who to, who to trust, you know, who's just, you know, who's, who's honest, who's fair. You know, it's, it's so difficult. And, you know, you know, we know that God is. God is fair. God is just. You know, we shouldn't, you know, we should, we should probably go out there and vote, but we shouldn't put all our faith and trust in, in man. Um, ultimately, God will be praised by everyone, both the righteous and the wicked. In verses 10 through 12, it says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. With the remainder of, of wrath, you shall gird yourself. Make vows to the Lord your God and pay them. Let all who are around him bring presents to him who ought to be feared. He shall cut off the spirit of princes and he is awesome to the kings of the earth. So both the righteous and the wicked will eventually give him all the praise. Verse 10 speaks of the totality of praise that God is due. And it's spoken about throughout the scriptures that all of humanity will one day praise him. And in Philippians 2, uh, John just taught this a couple of weeks ago, uh, verses 9 through 11. It says, Therefore God has also highly exalted him, Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
So the totality of praise goes to him who's worthy. And he brings down the earthly kings who, who exalt themselves against him and against his people. So we just see God's awesome power and his fairness and his justice in dealing with, with mankind. And we, ju- we should just rejoice in that. Amen. Um, moving on to Psalm 77. I love this psalm. This is one, this is one, a really relatable psalm. Something that we can really practically just get a sense of where the psalmist is and apply it very well to our lives. It's, it starts off as a lament that turns to a confession, that turns to a promise and that turns to a reflection on God's character. So it's sort of a journey that we take place, as, as happens in many of the Psalms. It's sort of a journey of emotions and feelings and, 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 and things that this, the psalmist is going through, and he just writes it all down and he expresses that. And so we, we go through these steps. And as we go through all these steps, we learn to appreciate God more. You know, it's in, the, it's in those times of difficulty, in those times of anguish, that we eventually come to a place we have a, where we really have a greater sense of His grace working in our lives. And this psalm also illustrates the biblical cure for, de- for depression. Remembering God's goodness. Remembering God's goodness. It's the biblical cure for depression. So, in, uh, starting off in verses 1 and 2, to the chief musician, to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph, I cried out to God with my voice, to God with my voice. He gave ear to me. In the day of trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. So obviously the psalmist here is in despair. We don't know the reason for his despair, but we, we only understand that his prayer is a desperate cry. More than just a petition or a meditation, it's, it's desperate. And we see that in that verse where he says twice, I cried out to God with my voice, to God with my voice. It seems as though he didn't just pray in his spirit or in his mind or in his heart. It seems like it was vocal. He cried out with his voice. I don't know if you've ever gotten to a place in your prayers where it's become a verbal, where it's not just in your heart. You know, you've gotten to a place of desperation where you just, you, you can't hold it in. And that's where the psalmist was here. And what I like about, it, about the psalmist is he knew to go to God even though he didn't find comfort there at first. And that's unusual. If you think about it, you know, we're such creatures of, um, well, if, if we don't get immediate results, we sort of move on to something else, right? We keep trying something else, something else. Where the psalmist here even though he still had desperation in his heart, he continued to go back to God. And I think this gives us hope. This is the application for that. 
is that, that even though we don't get an immediate answer to our prayers, that we continue to go to Him. We we're persistent, continuing to go to Him, as the psalmist did. So he, he, um, he goes to Him. He understands that God hears Him. He may not get comforted right then and there, but he'll continue to be faithful to go back to God. And then in verses 3 through 6, it says, I remembered God and I was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I've considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart and my spirit makes diligent search. So think about it. He says there, I remembered God and I was troubled. That almost doesn't make sense. But obviously this was a situation, this was desperation where even, even bringing remembrance of God to his mind didn't comfort him. Imagine that. Imagine remembering God. God, I remember you. God, I, I remember those things that you've done for me and I'm still in despair. You know, it, it could happen, even in our, in our lives, it could happen for a few reasons. If you think about it, maybe we remember what God had done in the past, and He's acted so quickly, maybe, to deliver us from something that we were going through, and then we wonder, how come it's not happening the same way now? You know, we, we kind of we put God in a box and we kind of you know, put a pattern on him and say, well, God, you answered me so, so swiftly the last time. How come it seems to be taking so long? So you know, we can remember him, but then we're still not comforted. It could, it could be for another reason. Maybe this situation is just nothing like we've ever experienced before. Maybe this is just something, you know, we've had our difficulties, we've had our troubles, we've come out of them, we've seen God work, but this is... This is different. This is just something that I've never experienced. And so you may remember how God dealt with those things in the past, but it's almost like saying, God, you know, this is, this is going to be difficult for you. This is going to be tough. Or it could be we remember God and we're still not comforted because we feel that he's abandoned us. You know, and, and maybe that's what's going on. So the psalmist here tries four different ways to be comforted by God. First thing he says in verse 5, I've considered the days of old. I've considered the days of old. So let's try that. <laughs> when we're in a desperate situation, okay, let's try this technique. We'll remember the days of old. Remember the times that God has delivered us in the past. Consider those times that we've come through difficult times and then, and then maybe that will bring comfort to our souls. And that's certainly something that we can do, we should do. And, and maybe God will bring comfort in that. And then he tries another way. He says, I call to remembrance my song in the night. So let's say God has delivered us through something in the past. And we're rejoicing in that. We're praising Him in that. We've come to a place of worship because of what He's brought us through. And we're remembering that. I call to remembrance 
just, you know, think about that time that you just, he delivered you from something and you just broke out in, in, in worship. You know, maybe that would bring comfort in this situation. You know, and that's a good thing also to do. And then he tries meditating within his heart. He says, he says I meditate within my heart. I meditate within my heart. Quiet time with the Lord. Maybe it's not praise and worship. Maybe it's just sort of being still and, and hearing that, that voice of the Lord in times of prayer, in our, in our time of, of, of devotions, you know, in just quiet times before Him, meditating, you know, not an outburst of praise and, and rejoicing, you know, but, but maybe just being with Him, you know, listen, listening for that still small voice. And then he seeks, seeks God in his spirit. He says, and my spirit makes diligent search. You know, those times of individual prayer where we come before the Lord and we just, we just, we just pound on heaven's door, you know, with prayer. You know, and diligently seeking him. You know, and, and just waiting for that, for that response from the Lord. So four different ways that the psalmist says that he, he attempted to be comforted by God and certainly ways that God's used in our lives to bring comfort to, a, to us when we're in, in a situation that's difficult. So, you know, those four things, think about them, remember them. It's considering the days of old when God has delivered us from the past, remembering, rejoicing over past victories, and then quietly meditating and being with him in intimate times and then seeking him in prayer. So four things certainly that we should do when we find ourselves in difficult situations. And then in verses 7 through 9, he asks now six questions. First he gave us four, four attempts to find comfort and now he asks six questions when he, maybe he didn't find comfort. So it says, Will the Lord cast off forever? Will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his mercies, his tender mercies? Selah. So talk about questioning, questioning God. You know, sometimes we feel that way. Now, the six questions are really questions of uncertainty, questions of doubt that the psalmist has. And again, we can, we can make application. You know, there, there's, there's uncertainty in, in many times in our, in, our, in our walk. Many times there's doubt we don't understand. So we, we may ask these questions, the first one, will the Lord cast off forever? So a question that we might ask if, if the problem seems to be going on for a long time and we, just, we, we don't see an end, we don't see the light at the end of the tunnel and we just, we, we don't know, we don't understand. So we think that he's going to cast us away. We think that he's forgotten about us. And then will he be favorable no more? You know, almost like, you know, God's answered prayer before. 
He's been patient with us. Maybe this is a, an ongoing sin, something that we go back to him time and time again, and we, and we just wonder, boy, maybe he's losing patience with me over this one. Will he be favorable no more? He's, he's been gracious to me in the past. He's answered those prayers before. But, boy, now I have doubt. Will God continue to, to be favorable to me? Or has he decided to just throw his hands up and say, you know, you know enough. <laughs> I've answered you. I've been, I've been patient enough. We, we, we may ask those questions. Has his mercy ceased forever? And has, has, has his promise failed forevermore? It's pretty much the same question. That does God have a limited supply of grace? Does God have a limited supply of mercy? And no, he doesn't. His mercy is unlimited. His mercy is forever. But he may eventually give us over to our sinful state. You know, remember that you remember how God eventually hardened the heart of Pharaoh. You know, after all those times where he wouldn't hear him, he wouldn't hear him. You know, and, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, but eventually God gave him over. This is the desire of your heart. I'm going to give you over to that. So maybe his mercy is limited in that sense where he says, okay, you don't, you're not receiving my mercy. You don't want my grace. So I'm not going to extend it to you any longer. You know, his promises don't fail. He makes you a promise, he's going to keep his promise. But his mercy may be limited in the fact that we don't receive it. You know, we're just, we're just not receiving it. And I love the word promise. It's used there in that, sec- in that second question um, in verse 8. Has his promise failed forevermore? No, no. There's a couple of verses I want to just share with you about the word promise. In Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So when we come to that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. It's our guarantee. So that promise that never fails of our Assurance of salvation. And then in, in uh, 2 Timothy 1.1 says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. Where do we find life? It says in, in John 10.10, 10, I have come to give life and that more abundantly. Life is in Jesus Christ. And that's a promise that we can always count on. And then in um, uh, where am I? Oh yeah, First John, First John two twenty five, and this is the promise. This is the promise that He has promised: eternal life, eternal life. So you know that awesome promise of God for eternal life. And so you know, I, I love the word. I love I love doing a little word search when we, when I find a word that sort of pops out. You know, the psalmist asks, has his promise failed forevermore? No. His promises are always true. And then he continues to question in verse 9, has God forgotten to be gracious? 
Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he, shut, has, has he in his anger shut up his tender mercies? No. No, he hasn't. You know, the anger that he senses, that the, the psalmist senses, may very well be God's dealing with his sin. You know, we learned, you know, going through Hebrews 12, that, that God will chasten those who he loves. You know, it's that correction that comes sometimes that comes from God because of our sin, but He loves us. He wants to turn us. So God doesn't forget to be gracious. He may just allow us to go through difficulties so that we can be turned around in, um, and go back in His direction. Um, back to Psalm 77, verses 10 through 12. And I said, this is my anguish, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. The word remember, the psalmist uses three times in three verses. Some things that we need to remember. The right hand of the Most High, God's strength. God's strength. Knowing that God is able more than able to deal with our problems. And then he speaks of God's mighty deeds to others, that, you know, that, that we're not ashamed, that when we go through a difficult time, we can express to others, God took us through that, and that we want to tell others about how he works in our lives. And then in verses 13 through 15, the psalmist says, your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. You have, with your arm, redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. So here, that intimate relationship, God's dealing with the nation during difficult times. You know, difficult times, especially times in the wilderness and times of being attacked by, by the pagan people that, surround, that were surrounding Israel at the time. And he puts Yahweh above all other gods. You know, every nation surrounding Israel had their own false gods that they worshipped. But the God of Israel was the one true God. And, and the psalmist is saying, you are greater than all of those gods. Then we see his power, his power demonstrated in nature and in God's dealings with the people in verses 16 through 20 as we finish up the psalm. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you, they were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters, and your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. I love that. It's God's power demonstrated in all of these different ways, in the lightning and the thunder, we see his power. You know, I don't know about you, I like going out in a thunderstorm and just watching what goes on, you know, the lightning and, and just the power that's behind all of that. In earthquakes, the earth trembled and shook, it says there. 
And it says in verse 19, your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters, and your footsteps were not known. What is he saying there? He's saying God led them through the dry land as he parted the Red Sea, and his footsteps weren't there. How did he lead them? He led them by his providence. He led them by his miraculous works, and he led them using other people. You know, he says there, through Moses and Aaron, he led them through. So God's wondrous works, his power demonstrated in nature, and then he brings it down from the lightnings and the thunders and the earthquakes. He says, you also use your power in people. You also use that same power working in the hands of people, leading others, ministering to one another. And that's what we do. As the body of Christ, we have all of the power behind us that, that's demonstrated in the lightning and the thunder and an earthquake. Imagine that. That God wants to work through us in mighty and powerful ways. And that's how we glorify Him. And we do that you know, in, in many different ways. And, you know, we have, always have opportunities to do that. And we can do it one-on-one, -on -one, ministering to one another. So consider, as you minister to one another, as you serve, as you're used of God, consider the power that's behind it now. You know, it's not of you. You know, it's, it's that total power of the all-powerful God. So we see that. We see His grace revealed in the redemption of his people. We see people continuing to get saved. Praise the Lord. And so God's, at, God's still at work. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.